that, that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Tonight on The Readout. Tape earlier in the day of Ruby Freeman and Shay Freeman Moss and one other gentleman quite obviously surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. What was your mom actually handing you on that video? A ginger mint. Welcome to the find out era. Rudy Giuliani is slapped with a summary judgment finding him liable for defaming Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. The courts will now decide how much he'll have to pony up to compensate the mother and daughter for their ongoing pain and distress. Plus, we'll expose Republicans' new tactic of trying to upend democracy by targeting election officials and judges who push back against their false claims of widespread voter fraud. And in the wake of another campus shooting, UNC's student newspaper delivers a gut-wrenching front page that reveals what it's really like to be a member of the run-hide-fight generation. That paper's editor-in-chief joins me later in the show. But we begin tonight with the architect of the plan to keep Donald Trump in power after he lost, John Eastman. The former Trump attorney and one of 19 co-defendants facing charges in the Georgia criminal case. Last week, Eastman was booked into the Fulton County Jail, still pushing the big lie immediately after surrendering to authorities over efforts to overturn the Georgia election. Eastman is the author of the coup memo the one advancing the fringe legal theory that a U.S. vice president has unilateral authority to reject certified state electors. The proposal was used to try to persuade Mike Pence to overturn the 2020 results. The receipts of his plot are so damning. Former White House lawyer Eric Hirschman advised him to get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. Sound advice. To get an idea of where Eastman may fall on the integrity scale, he once served as clerk for Clarence Thomas at the Supreme Court and is now facing disbarment proceedings in California. In true MAGA attorney fashion, none of this stopped him from going on Fox to self-troll about his legal problems. Last night, when Laura Ingraham asked whether prosecutors can prove their case against him, this was his response. So they've got all my emails. My phone was seized over a year ago, so they've got all that stuff as well. And I challenge them to find a single email or communication that supports that uh, implausible theory. Except, guess what? Those emails do exist. And they are public, man. Eastman may be right about one thing, though. They won't find a single email, but rather many Many, many, many emails pushing the theory that then-Vice President Mike Pence had the authority to subvert the Constitution. He even sent pressure cooker emails as rioters literally descended on the Capitol calling for Pence's head. But it isn't just about his emails, right? Eastman can get real chatty, as he did last night, or when he's serving as hype man for Trump's radicalized followers. We know there was fraud, traditional fraud that occurred. We know that dead people voted. And all we are demanding of Vice President Pence 
is this afternoon at one o'clock, he let the legislatures of the state look into this so we get to the bottom of it and the American people know whether we have control of the direction of our government or not. But then there are the other times when it's just crickets. Remember his deposition to the January 6th committee after Trump declined to give him that presidential pardon? Here's a refresher. I assert my Fifth Amendment right against uh, being compelled to be a witness against myself. Did the Trump legal team ask you to prepare a memorandum regarding the vice president's role in the counting of electoral votes at the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021? Yeah. Dr. Eastman, did you advise the president of the United States that the vice president could reject electors from seven states and declare that the president had been reelected? Fifth. 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 Eastman said, I plead the fifth repeatedly while deposed by the committee 100 times to be exact. Meanwhile, another one of the co-defendants, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, is perhaps taking a different tack to save his own skin by refusing to keep mum about his actions as detailed in the indictment. Meadows took to the witness stand earlier this week to bolster his bid to move the Fulton County case to federal court. He testified that he believed his actions detailed in the indictment fell within the scope of his duties as White House Chief of Staff. His hearing transcript could be released tonight or tomorrow morning. But his testimony could, get this, help the prosecutors in the case. Because, as detailed in the Daily Beast, what Meadows is saying is exactly what Fonnie Willis is trying to prove, that Trump was at the center of this entire criminal enterprise. Joining me now is Timothy Hafey, former lead investigator for the House January 6th Select Committee, Katie Benner, MSNBC contributor and national reporter for The New York Times, and Tristan Snell, former assistant attorney general for the state of New York, and the man who led the prosecution of Trump University. Thank you all for being here. Timothy Hafey, I want to start with you first. Um, let's start with, let's go backwards. Let's talk about Mark Meadows. Mark Meadows wants his case to be federalized, but it does seem that the more he talks to try to get that to happen, the more he hurts Trump. Is that how you see it? I think the Daily Beast story, Joy, is exactly right. He essentially confirmed that President Trump was in control of all of his activities and, by extension, the activities of the other charged co-conspirators. That is exactly the theory that the district attorney will present, that this was a conspiracy with a hierarchy, and at the very head of the hierarchy— was President Trump. Now, Meadows thinks that that helps him because it suggests that he was doing everything in his official capacity. The problem is that a lot of what he was doing has nothing to do with any federal authority, an issue controlled by the federal government. It has to do with state elections, which are clearly within the ambit of state officials, not federal, or campaign activity, which is also beyond the scope of what the chief of staff does. So I don't know that he helped himself, but he certainly helped Fonnie Willis. Let's go to Eastman for just a second. I mean, you all were not able to get him to do more than plead the fifth over and over 100 times. Um, what do you make of the fact that he's, he wouldn't talk to y'all, but he went on Fox and told a lot of stuff that doesn't seem helpful either? No, he went on Fox last night and he again said there was serious voter fraud. Again, he's a lawyer and lawyers have a duty of candor at, at all times. State bars have found they have a duty of candor when they speak out publicly. And there's just no factual foundation, Joy, for that assertion. He similarly has said repeatedly that the vice president has this unilateral authority to accept certain electors and not others. Again, no foundation. And his own emails show that he questioned the validity of that theory back in October before the election. And then even in his late 
our conversations with Mike Pence and with Mark Short trying to persuade the vice president, he acknowledged that that theory would lose nine to nothing in the Supreme Court. So again, no factual nor legal basis for the things that he was saying. You know, Tristan, you were giving him the amen, so I'm going to come to you next, because, you know, the the reality is Eastman doesn't seem super bright. I mean, Trump has sort of said, well, he's the most genius, you know, constitutional scholar in history, blah, 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 blah. But, there, you know, there's a sense, I mean, he has this connection to Clarence Thomas. There was some talk in the indictment, as, as laid out in the indictment, that at least at some point there, there was a belief among some of these conspirators that they could get this case to the Supreme Court. And they think that maybe, maybe they had maybe two people who go along with it. One can assume it's Clarence. Um, and he actually is one of the people who's, you know, written sort of a letter attesting to Clarence Thomas's integrity. I'm not sure he's a great character witness. He, he doesn't seem to be helping anyone um, other than the prosecutors at this point. What do you make of uh, Eastman's lugubriousness? You know, the thing is, Eastman is, you know, by, by all appearances, he's a true believer. He actually seems to believe all of this crap. And I don't think that he actually understands the, the fact that he keeps on digging a bigger and bigger hole for himself at this point. You know, uh, he wanted to he wanted to plead the fifth when he had that deposition. But every time he speaks in public, he's basically, uh, you know, he's basically inculpating himself. So he he pleaded the fifth when it mattered. But then when the cameras are on, he goes ahead and he mouths off. So I I don't really think that this uh, that this helps him. It doesn't help him with his disbarment proceeding in, in California either. Uh, you know, the, the, the real rub for a lot of these folks and, and Eastman very much falls into this category is that unlike Trump, who doesn't use email or text messages, although might have been DMing on Twitter, uh, enticingly, uh, you know, Eastman was creating memos out of his felonies. He was emailing his felonies. Uh, so there's plenty, as you were putting it before, there's plenty of emails. There's plenty of receipts here. Uh, Eastman is very boxed in and he keeps on making it worse. You know, Katie, I, you know, sometimes do wonder, I mean, at this point, the interests of all of these parties are starting to break apart. Um, you know, it, it, people are starting to think about themselves and be and behave in rational ways, which is do things to help themselves rather than just help Trump. And I wonder if Trump world has a fear of one more than the other, because it seems both of these men are unhelpful. But there are other people who could be potentially unhelpful, either uh, people who have not gotten their legal bills paid. Trump clearly doesn't seem to have the, mo- the money to be able to do that since he's lied about his mm-hmm. income. We're going to get to that in a moment. But I wonder if within Trump world, there's a fear of one more than the other or maybe a, a sort of growing sense that maybe all of these cases may redound to Trump's detriment. You know, I think that at this point, it's I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to get into the heads of people in Trump world and say what they're saying, because I really don't know. But I think that for prosecutors, they are going to be very watchful of what happens in these, to your point, dynamics between the various defendants. What people will be looking for is whether or not somebody is really loyal to Trump. And in some ways, this trial in Georgia is kind of a litmus test for the power that Donald Trump has over his circle. We've seen in all of these different venues, whether it was the Mueller investigation, whether it was the January 6th committee investigation, whether it was January 6th, whether it's the documents case, there's been such fealty and loyalty to Donald Trump. But now that people are facing the prospect of prison time in a Georgia state prison, it's, it's, it's something that people are going to be looking for. Will they finally crack 
is there something that can break that spell that Donald Trump has long had over pretty much all of his associates, with the exception of Michael Cohen? Even Rudy Giuliani, as we've seen today, you know, he's facing like really serious legal problems. He has no money. He cannot pay his legal bills. He still has complete fealty to Donald Trump. And again, it's we're going to find out probably in Georgia just how far that goes. Well, Timothy Havey, I mean, how long can that go? I mean, he literally is about to have to pay. We don't even know how much. One could imagine it's going to be a lot um, to Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss. He has been adjudicated as having defamed them and he, we, he's on tape defaming them. And now there's going to be a decision about how much he's going to have to pay out. He then, you know, I'm not a prosecutor, but he seems to me a, a is it even too late for someone at, at his level of guilt um, to try to find a way to save himself, at least from some of the legal peril, because it seems financially he's, he's dead. Done. Never too late, Joy. Look, the prosecutors in both the federal and the state cases will continue to try to develop additional evidence. Just because a case is charged doesn't mean that that process stops. And what often happens, as Katie just said, is after an indictment, People assess their exposure and they look at the discovery and they have a clear eyed assessment of the risk of serious consequences, criminal consequences, and they make a decision to make a deal, essentially to provide information, truthful information in exchange for the hope of leniency. Impossible to say whether or not Mayor Giuliani would go through that calculus. He certainly is feeling a lot of pressure. He's been disbarred, so he has no means of income other than his media appearances or podcasts. This finding in the defamation matter is serious. He will have to pay. The only question left in that case is how much he'll have to pay. And it just shows that lawyers, when they step out of their capacity as lawyers providing legal advice that has a sound factual foundation, are vulnerable to criminal charges and to, to civil findings of defamation. And Rudy Giuliani and the others are facing those consequences now. So I have to find out, Eric. Tristan, let's talk about the other person who's facing some interesting financial um, ramifications from his lies. Uh, that would be Donald Trump. Uh, the Tish James case doesn't get as much ink because there's so many other criminal cases, but this is a civil case, but it could cost Trump a lot of money. Uh, these are the findings um, that Donald Trump indeed inflated his personal wealth by billions of dollars. Um, here's a bit of a quote. Um, the attorney general's office said that over a 10 year period when it corrects the Trump financial statements for alleged misvaluations, it reduces Mr. Trump's net worth by between 17 and 39 percent in each year or between 812 million and 2.2 billion with a B, depending on the year. We will also note from this reporting that during Trump's first year in office, he overstated his personal wealth by over one point one billion dollars. And in 2018, he overstated it by one point nine billion. He overstated it by two point two billion in 2014. Ergo, never was a billionaire. How does where does all of that even come into play here? Because he is also facing potentially some serious financial pain. Yeah, it's the financial pain, Joy, but it's also then the fact that the AG's office is part of the law that they're going to be asserting against Trump here includes the ability to seek the cancellation of corporate charters for these entities that were overvaluing the worth of these properties. So in New York, that would mean, say, 40 Wall Street LLC getting its corporate charter canceled, which then throws everything into doubt about Trump's ability to uh, charge rent to those tenants. And the rent is the money that comes in the lifeblood of his sort of empire of debt 
he can service all of these uh, debts because he's getting this rent in the door from these properties. If he's not allowed to collect rent on his New York properties, it throws a whole bunch of things into uh, major limbo. So it's, it's, it's about a payment to the state of New York, but it's also about the, I think the one thing to look out for that we haven't been talking about that much yet is the possibility that he could lose the ability to do business in the state of New York because of his persistent fraud and illegality, not just in this matter alone, where it's years and years of overstatements, allegedly, but also that we out, we have the Trump University matter, the Trump Foundation matter, and then the, uh, the finding of tax fraud uh, by a, a criminal jury in the in in Manhattan uh, that happened last year is more than enough to establish a pattern of persistent fraud and illegality for which New York state courts will order the extraordinary relief of cancellation of corporate charters. Can they um, take some of these properties? Can the state of New York seize properties from him? We don't know exactly how this is going to play out in practice. Uh, this is something that I'm actually going to be looking into as we head toward trial in this matter and then in the next month or so. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what would happen. Would they take them? Would they put them into a receivership, potentially, uh, whereby the, the property would basically be held in a trust? Some of the creditors might be able to get some money. Uh, they would probably be taking significant haircuts. But it wouldn't allow Trump to basically take money from his New York properties and use it, say, on his legal fees. That wouldn't be permitted. He wouldn't be able to rob Peter to pay Paul. It could have massive, massive financial impact for Trump uh, and, and completely ruin the shell game that he's been running all these years. Katie, I mean, this it's, it's kind of mind blowing to think about it. I mean, there's a reason that Donald Trump isn't just cutting checks to all of the people who are being prosecuted with him. That would help keep them on side. He has to do fundraisers for Rudy Giuliani because he clearly doesn't have the, check, the, the, the cash, even in his pack to cut. And a lot of people forget that the reason Mar-a-Lago is no longer a private home, the reason it's a club, is that he was bankrupt. And the deal he made is to start making it turn a profit uh, by selling memberships to it instead of just living in it like Marjorie Merriweather Post, who built it. And so if Donald Trump is now running into serious financial issues as well, um, I mean, I guess he can sell a lot of mugshot merch, but there is the prospect here that somebody who was never as rich as people thought gets considerably poorer and is living on the dole of his donors, his small dollar donors. Yes. You know, we spend a lot of time focused on his criminal matters and, and for very good reason. I mean, these are cases that not only speak to whether or not he broke the law, but some of them, whether or not he tried to undermine the fundamental principles of democracy. So yes, indeed, we should focus on those criminal matters. However, in this civil matter, because of the disastrous financial consequences it could have for him, it's really fascinating. Even if he won the election, it wouldn't change the fact if he lost that he would lose tremendous amounts of money. We don't know what would happen to his properties. His his enormous empire of debt that he's built, that that could come crumbling down and that he could face this incredible, incredible economic disaster, even if he were to do something like win an election. It does not change what Wall Street does. And so then, you know, bigger questions have to be answered about whether or not that is a person who's fit to run the country. But this is, as Tristan said, a very big deal and something important. Well, maybe Jared could loan him some of the $2 billion he got from the Saudis, you know, his family. Uh, Timothy Hafey, Katie Benner, Tristan Snell, thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, the threats to democracy born of Trump's big lie just keep on coming as Republicans find new ways to ignore the choices made by American voters. The Readout continues after this. 
Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. While all these Trump indictments are a sign that accountability and the rule of law still matter, we are still grappling with a particular poison the former president didn't invent, but still made worse in our politics. It's the fact that Republicans don't believe in elections unless they win. Anything other than Republican control is illegitimate, and nothing is too extreme to make sure they win. Pass laws to make it harder to vote. If that fails, try to overturn the election. And failing that, just get rid of the person that the voters elected. Take Wisconsin. Republicans want to remove the state's election administrator, Megan Wolf, because she dared to ensure a free and fair 2020 election, which Donald Trump lost. Mind you, she was appointed with unanimous support from Republicans four years ago. But yesterday, a state Senate committee took public testimony about her reappointment, where Republicans rehashed a litany of lies about the 2020 election. One Democratic county clerk warned Republicans of the chaos they were inviting. We know that next year, Wisconsin, even now, is a battleground state. Considering what happened after the 2020 elections um, and since, we are in a world of crazy for next year. The Wisconsin Supreme Court a year ago last month said that the administration of elections here in Wisconsin was so bad that you harmed and you injured voters that the results of that election in 2020 are illegitimate. A majority of people in Wisconsin have doubts about the honesty of elections in this state. Okay, now here's the irony. The attorney general of the state warned Republicans that their tactics are illegitimate and these proceedings are not allowed under state law. The state law Republicans wrote, he will not be shocked to hear that Republicans do not care about the law they passed and plan on proceeding with her termination anyway. The matter is expected to result in court and most likely headed to the newly minted liberal majority Supreme Court. But Republicans have plans to fix that problem, too. The Republican Assembly Speaker told reporters he would move to impeach newly elected Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz if she dares to weigh in on a case about the state's absurdly gerrymandered congressional map. And here's the kicker. If they impeach her, the Democratic governor gets to appoint a new justice. But don't worry, they figured out a workaround for that, too. They'll just impeach her, but won't convict her. Since during impeachment, a justice immediately must stop performing her duties, effectively sidelining her without actually removing her. This playbook of just trashing the will of the majority is now standard operating procedure for Republicans across the country. 
National and local Republicans are moving to boot President Biden. District attorneys Fonnie Willis and Alvin Bragg, Attorney General Merrick Garland and Special Counsel Jack Smith, because they are holding Trump accountable. Don't take my word for it. Just look at what this Georgia state senator told Steve Bannon. We need to be taking action right now, because if we don't, our constituencies are going to be fighting it in the streets. Do you want a civil war? I don't want a civil war. I don't want to have to draw my rifle. I want to make this problem go away with my legislative means of doing so. And the first step to getting that done is defunding Fonnie Willis of any Georgia tax dollars. And hopefully Representative Jordan and Representative Biggs will follow suit in Congress. I am joined now by Matthew Dowd, MSNBC political analyst and attorney at Wiley Ryan. Matthew, it is good to see you. It is, you know, it's... If it was just one state, if it was just Wisconsin, it'd be one thing. But it's a trend. You can go through it. Donald Trump accuted to overturn the election. Wisconsin threatening to impeach the democratically elected um, Supreme Court judge on trying to remove the elections official. Florida, Governor uh, DeSantis removing two democratically elected prosecutors. Tennessee expelling two democratically elected members of the House. Montana silencing democratically elected House members. Alabama, black democratically elected black ma- uh, mayor prevented from taking office. Alabama ignoring Supreme Court ruling on gerrymandering. Maps. You could just go on and on. Republicans essentially say, if we don't win, we don't accept that the election is legitimate and we can just remove whoever is elected. Yeah, you know, if you think about this, they've completely adopted an ends justify the means approach to the democracy, which means it doesn't matter what we do as long as we get the end we want. I was thinking about this a lot, Joy. This is almost a 21st century version of secession. If you really think about it, because their goal is to preserve the culture they want, the power they have and the way of life they want. They're not doing it in the same way that was done in 1861, but they're doing it in such a way that it demolishes our democracy. And they're able to, in their mind, preserve what they want in the course of this. And that's what we've gotten down to is this idea that no means are off. No means are off basis. No means are off basis. I mean, you still have two thirds of Republicans that do not think Joe Biden was legitimately elected. <laughs> two and a half years later, two yeah. and a half years later, they still think he was not legitimately elected in this. And it's an incredibly dangerous thing when the that one of the legacy major political parties has basis has basically decided to secede from our democracy. You know, in Wilmington, North Carolina, in the 19th century, they didn't like the election of the black and tan, uh, you know, uh, you know, Republicans. And so they were like, you know, we'll just overturn the government. We'll just overthrow the government. We'll just get rid of it. And they did that. Now, in modern day North Carolina, the only remaining black female Supreme Court justice is now suing because she's being investigated to try to remove her from office. They're simply saying we can't win these elections legitimately. This is an elected office. They're saying we don't win. We're just going to throw people out. And I wonder if you think that, well, let me just show you this, because it seems to me that they say they're doing it because their voters don't trust elections. But let's look at this polling from Georgia. Do you believe there was widespread voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election or not? 61% of Republicans say absolutely yes. But back in January, in, uh, in 20, uh, they asked whether the 2022 election, right? This is after they passed their extreme voter law that their governor, Governor Kemp, signed under a picture of a plantation. So you pass extreme voter suppression laws and they say, yes, 73 percent. I'm very, very confident. So when they get the restrictive voting laws they want, they only trust the elections under those laws if they win. 
Well, they actually only trust the elections if their candidates win, right? right. So it's not just that they get their laws. It's, it's it's we trust the election. The election is fair and valid if we win. Right. It's not fair and valid if we lose. And the other thing I laughed about when you showed that who's a member that used to be a member of the Supreme Court in Wisconsin saying that a majority of voters don't trust the election results. Well, duh, because you people have been lying to them. I mean, it's it's like a group of people. You go tell a group of people it's raining outside and that group of people reports back, doesn't look outside and, and then come tell you what's it doing outside. I think it's raining outside. Well, they were told that because somebody lied to them about it. They've been lied to so many, so many times. I actually, in some ways, feel sorry for many of the voters because they've been so disrespected by Donald Trump. And I don't get the attachment, the still attachment to the GOP because they're so disrespected. They're lied to constantly. They're, they don't trust the voters because they think if we told them the truth, they wouldn't go the way we want them to go in this. But there is no question. Why would voters believe the, the votes, the vote isn't a legitimate? Because they're told it by by the GOP. And I mean, you would think facts would wake people up. I mean, both the heads of Latinos for Trump, Enrique Tarrio, and the head of Blacks for Trump, both in jail. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, you don't really benefit, you know, but they're still saying we're going to get the Black and Latino voters to come our way. I mean, it, the, the, the reality of it is we are at the point where Republicans, there is no stringent enough voter law you could pass. You could ban everything but same day voting. You could ban all drop boxes. If they still lose, they're still going to think the election was stolen. The end. Well, because that's because the culture they want to be put in place does not match the population of the country today. They still believe and they want a culture that is a one culture democracy that existed for 200 years in our country. That no longer is in place. The majority of voters no longer look like the way the Republicans want them to look like. And so what's their solution to that is? It's not to go persuade people. It's not to go convince people of their viewpoint on certain things. It's to basically ensure by hook or by crook that the, that, that the electorate will look more about what they want the electorate to look like, not what the electorate actually is in our multicultural democracy. Yeah, they're not just banning books. They're banning Republicans losing elections. It is a remarkable stuff. Uh, no, it is. It's, it's, it's modern. It's, it's secession in the 21st century. Yeah, it really is. It is a great way to describe it. Matthew Dowd, um, as always, thank you very much. And up next, cheers. A devastating hurricane fueled by abnormally hot oceans tears across Florida as Republicans continue to, to continue to insist that the climate crisis is all in our imagination. We'll be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. 
I don't think anybody can deny the impact of the climate crisis anymore. Just look around. Historic floods. I mean, historic floods. More intense droughts. Extreme heat. Significant wildfires have caused significant damage like we've never seen before. And while we're dealing with this latest extreme weather event, I remain laser focused on recovering and rebuilding efforts in Maui. That was President Biden on the federal response to Hurricane Idalia, which is now a tropical storm after tearing through the southeast. It made landfall this morning in Florida's Big Bend region as a Category 3 hurricane, the strongest to hit there in 127 years. The 125-mile-an-hour winds created storm surges as high as 8 feet in some areas. President Biden is a politician who speaks about climate change as a crisis that is, you know, real. As for Republicans, it's deny and deflect. Idalia barreled into Florida at a time when its governor, Ron DeSantis, has been preoccupied with his failing presidential campaign. He abruptly shut down a question about the climate crisis at last week's Republican debate. Do you believe in human behavior is causing climate change? Raise your hand if you do. Look, look, we're not school children. Let's have the debate. I mean, I'm happy to take it to start. Yeah, never mind that in Ron DeSantis's Florida, homeowners face an insurance crisis with providers bailing over high costs tied to climate-related disasters. Meanwhile, Vivek Ramaswamy again pushed his climate change is a hoax nonsense in an interview with my colleague Andrea Mitchell. There's a hard fact of the hurricane that is now approaching. The mayor, a a three-generation St. Petersburg resident, says he's never seen anything like this, the the ocean warming. But let me move on to some Andrea, may may I respectfully offer a response to that? And and I mean this with due respect. If someone on the other side were an uneducated person from Arkansas who didn't go to college and offered one weather event as an end of one anecdote to help support a theory of global climate change, you'd laugh off off the stage as a rube for saying they don't follow data. There's a thing where you say respect and then you behave in a way that's incredibly, uh, I will not use uh, the word I'm thinking. I'm joined now by Chris Chris Gloninger, uh, former chief meteorologist at KCCI and senior climate scientist at Woods Hole Group. I guess the word I'll say is condescending. But I wonder what you make of somebody who in the year of our Lord 2023, when according to the Associated Press, Idalia is so potent because it's feeding on intensely warm water that acts like rocket fuel, according to researchers who actually do climate research. South Florida waters hit hot tub levels and may set a world record for warmest seawater. That's fueling the hurricanes. What do you say of somebody who claims to be a science guy, but who still says the stuff Ramaswamy was saying? There aren't many. There is a consensus of meteorologists, climate scientists, 99% of all peer-reviewed papers, Joy, show that there is anthropogenic climate change. And the fact that we're still even having that conversation, that that's even being uttered, the word hoax, and pairing it up with climate change in 2023, as you mentioned, is just absolutely shocking. Now, for every one degree uh, of warming that we see with our oceans, Joy, the wind speeds go up four to five percent. And that actually increases the damage potential by 40 to 50 percent. So this is a high stakes game, especially for places along the Gulf Coast that have seen these rapid intensifications happening right up to landfall. And if you look at the storms that have intensified 40 miles per hour or more within 24 hours since 1950, there have been 10 of those storms. Eight have happened since 2005, Joy. So that isn't just a coincidence. That is a clear trend.
And you've got the governor of Florida turning down EPA money that would have helped to shore up wetlands there. They're still allowing developers to build on very shaky sort of wetland grounds. And they're still, you know, pushing to drill, 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 drill until the earth dies. And, and I wonder if you what you make of these political choices that are being made, including by governors who have to fly back from their campaign trail trying to be president and deal with the real world effects of climate of the climate crisis. You know, Joy, I think about it in a, in a fiscally responsible way, which is a conservative philosophy. And if you look at insurance companies, they tend to skew more conservative. But when it comes to securing and protecting their assets, they're not very conservative. They are all in in protecting their money. And that's why they're pulling out of these regions. Look, we're at $15 billion disasters disasters costing a billion dollars or more through July. And since then, we had the Maui fires, Tropical Storm Hillary across Southern California, and now Idala, um, that, that made landfall across the, the Big Bend in, in Florida. So, you know, to, to, to think that the policy and money is not needed, I mean, who's paying every time FEMA shows up? It's the tax dollars. So the fiscally responsible thing to do is to focus on mitigation and adaptation. But we have to do it in a way also that is uh, equitable. It can't just be protecting and shoring up the communities that have it all. It has to be shoring up and protecting the communities that need the most protection. So we need to have these big conversations on policy, on funding, and what direction we're headed with uh, mitigation, and that's cutting our carbon levels. But you mentioned going uh, away from fossil fuels. That also has to be done equitably. For many Americans, in EV and solar is still not affordable. We have to work those prices down, and that has to be a priority. And I mean, but the thing is, as you said, you have to be fiscally responsible. I mean, Governor DeSantis turned down money from the Biden administration, from the IRA, which is this bill that would have helped Floridians weatherize their homes. He doesn't want to do that. Nine out of the 10 poorest states in the country that are subsidized by the taxpayers of blue states are red states. Red states are essentially on the dole. We're now going to have to bail out Florida again. So is that the future here where the states that deny climate crisis are simply going to be bailed out by the states that do believe in the science? There's no question. It's not just the flood insurance program that is that is being hit hard with huge losses and these repetitive losses. The the federal crop insurance program, too. So you're looking at these two track uh, agricultural practices, right? Like in Iowa, where I was, where it was just corn and soybeans. You have to ver- diversify. If not, we're going to go down this road where we're really not going to be able to dig our way out of. And that is something that honestly keeps me up at night. People are worried about the economy. And if you've read a lot of the articles that ranks at the top. Yeah. You really haven't heard anything about the economy until you factor in the cost that climate change are affecting is costing all taxpayers. Uh, Note to voters, elect people who will actually protect you from the climate crisis and will actually help your bottom line and help keep you alive. These storms are coming. Meteorologist Chris Gloninger, thank you very much. Up next, jumping out of windows, barricading doors, hiding under desks. Just another day in the life of America's run, hide, fight generation. Republicans love their kids too, right? So why can't we fix this? Back in a sec. Students at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill are still reeling after their first week of classes ended with the tragedy of yet another school shooting. On Monday, after an armed gunman shot and killed an associate professor in one of the campus's buildings, the entire school was on lockdown for more than three hours.
during which time students across the campus were forced to run and hide. Some were caught on camera jumping out of windows to escape. And today, the school's student newspaper, The Daily Tar Heel, gives a stark look at the sheer terror those students were facing in those 190 minutes. The entire front page is filled with harrowing text messages between UNC students and their loved ones while they were in lockdown. Messages like, I'm so scared. We love you. Please let me know when you are safe. And I wish these never happened. A devastating reminder of the reality our children are constantly forced to face. Only in America. Joining me now are Emmy Martin, editor is M- Emmy Martin, editor in chief for the Daily Tar Heel. Tar- Daily Tar Heel. Emmy, thank you very much for being here. Talk about the um, sort of origin and making of this incredible cover. Joy, thank you for having me. Um, it was quite quite a process. I mean, I was in lockdown on Monday, and as soon as me and the other students at the Daily Tar Heel knew that we were safe, we headed to our newsroom and we started talking about how we were going to cover this tragic event, what our front page would look like. Um, we had something planned for that week. Um, it was a football preview paper. We knew we had to scrap it. And so we switched to something fully focused on the events of Monday. Um, so many students were scared. I was scared in lockdown, um, didn't know if we were safe hands were shaking, pulse was racing. Um, But that night, looking through all of the messages that I had received that day and seeing so many other students who had received texts like, are you safe? There's someone dead. Where are you? I just figured this is such a universal experience on this campus and on campuses where there have been shootings that we had to put this on our front page. Which is a shameful... Yeah, it's a shameful uh, uh, commentary on America that this is a routine experience for your generation. Let me play some of your fellow students at UNC. We all just stayed hiding in the stalls, squatting on the toilets, just scared. We didn't know what was happening. I don't think that any of us are going to be able to go on without kind of looking over our shoulder for the next couple days, weeks, months. This is a situation that we really shouldn't even have to be worrying about. You know, we're in class and lecture and we have to be concerned about gunmen coming into our classrooms and, you know, hurting people when we're just here to learn like anybody should be able to. So I'm very angry about this and something needs to be done. Can you speak to the people who believe that this is okay? that this is normal, that that, you know, protecting people's ability to get their hands on whatever weapons they want is more important than you guys not feeling this way, than kids not feeling this way? I think until you're in a situation where you're scared for your life and you don't know who's going to come into your room or you don't know if you're safe, um, you don't fully understand um, the full extent of gun violence and the issue of gun violence in America. Um, I had never gone through a situation like this before. And now that I have, um, it's it's still hard to process and hard to think about um, all the people who have also gone through this or have gone through this multiple times. Um, And it's definitely a national issue and seeing the response to our paper from everyone across the nation, including uh, President Biden just recently posted on his social media. It's been um, overwhelming and it also shows how big of an issue this is. And I mean, whenever, you know, anyone sort of takes a stand that says this shouldn't be normal, the pushback is usually furious the other direction. Have you all received that kind of negative response? We have received an overwhelming positive response. I think 
creating something that encompasses or embodies what students felt on campus um, was the goal. And yes, I think our front paper has or our front page of the paper has a bigger um, a bigger message. But I personally have not seen that much of a pushback from any side. Well, that is at least a little bit of good news. Uh, we are glad that you are safe, Emmy uh, Martin. We are glad that you are making the world of journalism better even before you get out of school, my dear. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you all for doing what you did. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. Be right back. Before we go, be sure to check out the readout blog. Tonight, Jahan Jones takes on everything from John Eastman's clueless defense of Clarence Thomas to Reverend Al schooling MAGA rappers right here on the readout last night. But tomorrow morning, drum roll, Jahan drops his first interview for our Hip Hop is Universal series with Dr. Taj Frazier, host of the Hip Hop and the Metaverse on PBS. Check it out. And that is tonight's readout. Hey parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.